and welcome to the So Novel Podcast. I'm your host Jess and in this fortnightly podcast I will be chatting all things books as well as interviews with authors, publishers and bookstagrammers. So whether you're looking for your next read or you want to know the story behind the story then this is the podcast for you. On today's episode of Author Chat, I chat to the wonderful Sally Hepworth. Sally is an Australian author based in Melbourne. She's the author of six novels, including her most recent release, The Good Sister. In today's episode, we chat about the inspiration behind The Good Sister and a few of the themes that she explores in the book. We also chat about the writing process of The Good Sister, and she tells us how this was on the book she had planned to release in 2020. We also chat about her Instagram series and social media presence. Sally was an absolute delight to talk to. So here she is. Hi, Sally, and welcome to the So Novel Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a joy to finally be here. To other listeners, we've given this a few goes (laughs) to try and make it work. So I'm glad to be here after all this time. It has taken us a while to get here, yes, but I'm I'm glad that we're here. (laughs) Better late than never. Exactly. Now, my first question I ask everyone is, what are you currently reading? I'm about to start The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Any book about libraries is, you know, like catnip to me and it's been sitting on my bedside table and I've been waiting for it. But the last couple of weeks I've had a lot of work reading to do, so unpublished books, early uh, advanced reader copies. And so I've been holding onto this one and, you know, it is always something a bit special when I get to read something I choose. You know, it does feel particularly pleasurable even though all books are pleasurable. So I'm looking forward to it. So how does that work with um, you receiving ARCs? Do you get them just from your publisher or other publishers as well? And is that kind of a commitment most authors would uh, commit to? Well, we don't have to commit. The first part of it is that, yeah, I get them from lots of different publishers, sometimes get them from the authors direct, maybe if they have been uh, a fan of of some of my previous books and then they have a book coming out, they might send it. Um, sometimes it'll come from my editor. Sometimes it'll come from, you know, really all over the place. Um, it's not a commitment because I think, you know, certainly in my case, you are not obliged to read or or endorse anything that you don't like. In fact, that's really frowned upon. It's it, Books kind of come your way and people hope that you will connect with that particular book and then maybe share some words about it. Sometimes I'll just read a book and love it and I might post a picture of it, of it on my Instagram. Uh, sometimes I'll read it and, and you know, just move on with my life or recommend it to a friend. Um, there is no, no commitment, but, of course, it's great to have other readers reading each other's books and we're all in the same world and we like to boost each other up if we can. So, yeah, I, I think of it as a perk to get to, to read all these books. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, because I know that you've been one of the lucky ones to read Jesse Stevens' book when there is a lot of us that are eagerly awaiting that one to come out. It is so good. It is going to be the book of this year. You heard it here first. Oh, there you go. <laughs> now, we're going to discuss discuss your newest release today, The Good Sister. So can you start off by telling us a bit about the book? Yeah, The Good Sister is about 
sisters, as you may have guessed from the title. Uh, It's about twin sisters, Fern and Rose, who are incredibly close and also incredibly different. They have shared a pretty difficult childhood together. Now they're adults. They still spend an enormous amount of time together. Fern, uh, one of the sisters, is probably on the spectrum, although she hasn't been diagnosed. She has some difficulties with sensory processing. And so she relies on her sister Rose quite heavily just to lead her day-to-day life. And so when Rose finds herself unable to have a baby, Fern, her sister, finds herself thinking, well, I can help her out. I can do this for her. I can have a baby for her. And that kind of kicks off this whole quirky, funny adventure that the girls go on that also is quite dark and quite uh, telling about their childhood and it ends up kind of unravelling a big mystery. So it's about sisterhood, it's about secrets, it's about neurodiversity um, and finding your person, I think. Yeah, and it was definitely a page turner. Like a good thriller for me is a page turner. And I read this in one day. So I felt um, a bit sick in the morning. So I said to my hubby, I was like, I'm just going to lay in bed for a while. Like you take care of the kids. And like I was probably fine by about lunchtime. But then after that, I was like, I just really want to keep reading this book. So I was like, oh, no, I can't get up. Like you'll have to take the kids, you know, take them out for the afternoon and (laughs) do something with them. And, yeah, I smashed it out in one day. It was so good, so good. (laughs) So can you tell us a bit more about the inspiration behind the book? Because I believe your two daughters inspired a lot of the story. They did well, not not the story so much as the idea for the book, because I don't have any sisters. I always feel a bit sheepish saying that because I uh, have written a book about sisters. I do have brothers and they're twins, so I've always had a fascination with twins. But the actual kind of spark to write this book happened one day when I was watching my little girls play outside. They were having a great time. It was quite unusual, you know, them getting along. Uh, and there were squeals of joy and it was all very lovely, but it didn't last very long. And after a couple of minutes, the squeals of happiness turned to the squeals of someone's been injured. And I thought, well, this is more like it. So I I went to check it out and I found that Eloise, my oldest daughter, uh, had a ring of teeth marks in her arm and Clementine, my younger daughter, was looking kind of guilty So, of course, I went to reprimand my little two-year-old, as she was at the time, for biting her sister. And Eloise, who's the injured party, teeth marks in her arms, said, don't you yell at my baby sister. (laughs) I was so confused because I, first of all, she had teeth marks in her arm. And second of all, as someone with brothers, I can tell you that there was no greater joy and still is no greater joy in my life than when my mum tells off my brothers. I mean, you just are on top of the world when that happens. And yet my daughters, it was different. They, she didn't want Clementine to get in trouble. And, in fact, she ended up saying to me later, don't worry, mum, I'll get her back later. <laughs> and I thought, that's interesting. And And it's this kind of possessiveness of there's this love you know this this incredible love that says you can't tell off my sister but also that I can hurt her if I want to you know I can bite her and I'm going to get her back later but this is between us and it it just got me thinking about how sisters are different from brothers and there is a, a a 
love, but also a cunning. And I, I walked away from that and I came into my office and I wrote down sisters, question mark. And that was kind of the beginning of this book. Yeah, that's awesome because I'm like you. So I only have one brother and he's the younger brother. So I was the same. I used to be that, you know, shit stirrer of a sister who would try and get him in trouble all the time. And it was kind of this dynamic where, you know, you would you would fight back, you would get it over and done with and, you know, you'd laugh as they were getting yelled at and then move on. Yes. Whereas, yeah, I feel like that female dynamic is a bit different and it's like, the plotting of, you know, what's going to happen next. How am I going to uh, resolve this later? Yeah, it's a lot more cerebral, isn't it? And and a lot more emotion goes into it and a lot more planning. I think with boys, it's just a little, it's fast, you know, they're angry and they punch you in the st- stomach and then like everyone's friends again. So yeah, yeah it's <laughs> definitely a different dynamic and it was fun to explore. Yeah, for sure. Now, as you said, your two daughters aren't twins, but in the book, Rose and Fern are twins. So why did you choose to include twins as uh, the storyline? Well, as I said, my brothers were twins. And so twins have always been something that have been part of my world. In fact, when I was younger, my mum said, I used to say, where's my other one? Because, you know, it was always Sally and the boys, you know, there were two of them, but there was only one of me. And that was, that was confusing to me. But also I, I guess I really enjoy in my books writing about perspectives and how it's so interesting to, to look at things from someone else's perspective. You know, there's always two sides of the truth, isn't there? And so to have twins, people who are, you know, about as close in, you know, even closer than normal siblings who have experienced the same thing, you know, the same childhood, they have the same nature and nurture, and yet they view something quite differently is really interesting to me that that there is still two sides of the truth, no matter. I mean, I could have gone closer to identical twins, um, but I, I didn't want to do that for various reasons. And um, one of the one of the reasons is that I really liked the idea of one of them being neurodiverse, which, as we said, Fern is, is most likely on the spectrum. Rose isn't. Um, I think that's one of the things that coloured their perspectives on things and, and why they perhaps viewed things a little bit differently. There are also other reasons. Uh, but there's something about twins to really say, wow, these two have the same life, they've had the same trajectory, and yet they view things differently. Why? Um, So that was the the appeal of twins for me. Yeah, because you spoke then about um, nature versus nurture and that was actually um, my next question because, as you said, in the book the twins are, you know, total opposites. We've got Rose who's kind of that organised motherly type figure, well, she presents as that, and then we have Fern on the other hand who, as you said, even though we're not explicitly told, displays characteristics of someone on the autism spectrum. Now, without giving too much away for those who haven't read the book as yet, if you take away the domestic thriller aspect in this equation, you actually have my husband's sisters. So they are fraternal twins who are complete opposites. One of them studied robotic engineering at university and the other one is neuroatypical. So tell us how you portray this concept of nature versus nurture through the story. Wow, that that's interesting. I 
how did I do that? I, I always find it hard, the how, you know, and, and, the, and even the why because to an extent I am a planner and an organiser of my books. There is a craft to novel writing uh, and I take that quite seriously. On the other part of it, there's definitely an art to it and some of the decisions that I make are not necessarily I'm going to do this for this result or I'm going to plan this for this. Things just happen um, as I as I write. Um, I think I have a, a real interest in neurodiversity. I have a neurodiverse family. Uh, it's something particularly sensory processing disorder because it's something I haven't seen a lot of in fiction. Um, while we are starting to see autism and, you know, maybe ADHD and, and some some um, conditions in fiction, hadn't seen a lot of sensory processing disorder. So I knew that I wanted to highlight that. Um, and as I said, just the, the, the way that perspectives can be different between a neurotypical and a, and a neuroatypical person gives us that beautiful nuance to, to any story. So I, I knew it would work from a, um, a plot kind of character twisty perspective, but I also thought that here's an opportunity to highlight something that is so uh, near and dear to my family and, and something that I think we need to raise awareness of, um, empathy for, and and just see more in the our daily lives. Yeah. So you were just talking about then of kind of about your writing process. So I listened to an interview you done with Mia Freeman on No Filter. And this wasn't actually the book you had planned to release in 2020, was it? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, there was another book that you had wrote that didn't quite make it to print. So how did you overcome that hurdle? And how has your writing process changed in 2020 thanks, thanks to that C that must not be named? <laughs> <laughs> so I yeah exactly so so the last book that was published before The Good Sister was called The Mother-in-Law and Which for the, the previous <laughs> thank you uh for the previous five books I guess I had released a book a year and, and that's the trajectory that I'm on I, I'm I'm um commissioned is the wrong word contracted to write a book a year and yet it's been almost two years between books um, people will notice between the mother-in-law and the good sister so I didn't take a year off that would have been wonderfully joyous but I did in fact write a book uh, it was about a group of swingers <laughs> which I not not swing dancers no the other kind <laughs> Uh, it did involve me having to go to a swingers party with my husband we did not partake but we did see some stuff that we will never unsee. Uh, that process, it, uh, you know, we don't have all day. So I go and listen to my podcast with Mia Friedman uh, on the Late Lady Startups podcast if you want to hear the whole ins and outs about and, and some great stories about the swingers party. But long story short, I wrote a book about swingers. My publishers didn't think that it was the right book. And I ended up shelving that book, which was incredibly difficult. It was a year of work. Financially, it meant I didn't get paid for that year of work. It meant that I, you know, artistically, I had had this failure and I needed to write another book. And I needed to write it fairly quickly because I'm the primary breadwinner. Now I'm the only breadwinner in our family because my husband has just stepped away from his job to support me. But so as you say, tie it back to the question, I did change my process and I changed it as a form of kind of self-protection because I had 
anxiety about failing again. Of course, you know, if I if I wrote another book that didn't get across the line, that would have been a disaster for our family. We would have had to sell our house and and all sorts of things. And so that can be a crippling thing artistically to, to you know, here's this big failure. You might never get paid again. Now go and write a really good book. You know, it's not great yeah. for the creativity. <laughs> and so I started doing this thing and I can't claim full ownership of it. There's a, a writer called James Scott Bell who has coined a technique called the Nifty 350. This is a little bit different from what I did, but his theory in essence is that you uh, wake up, you roll out of bed or stay in bed if that's, as, you know, as long as you get your computer in front of you and you just type or, or handwrite, I suppose, 350 words. And the idea of it is that A, mornings are sacred in terms of, the creativity that that comes out of you. And I think that's true. Most writers I speak to really get a surge of energy in the morning. Um, but also it kind of beats the fear. It's about beating the fear, just getting those words down. Doesn't matter if they're any good. You might delete them later. You don't have to use the words, but you do have to write 350 words. And I had done that for a while when I was drafting. But what I found useful about that technique is it does beat the fear and I had so much fear and so instead of just doing it in the morning I started doing it all day I would write in 350 word bursts and I would cross them off writing a similar amount of words and I, I used to write about two to three thousand words a day I would write about two to three thousand words a day but 350 words at a time and I'd cross them off and I got a great deal of satisfaction out of crossing off you know small wins um, along the way and it really took the emphasis off quality, which sounds sort of counterintuitive because, of course, you want your work to be high quality. But I, all I had to do was write 350 words. They could be the worst, crappest words ever. But if I had written them, I had been successful. And that really gave me the boost that I needed to just keep going. I don't have to write anything good today. All I have to do is write 350 words and then the next 350 words. It's like writing, running a marathon one step at a time. And I just found it life-changing um, in terms of process. I told all my writer friends, they all started doing it and also found it incredibly uh, changing, you know, a way that they all draft now. And I still do it. That's, it's, it's a process that I think I've unlocked something. I should write a book about it. Yeah, but then I'd sort of be stealing James Scott Dell's idea, so maybe not. But, um, <laughs> yeah. That's how I do it now, 350 words at a time. Yeah, that's awesome. And so do you kind of incorporate then all of those um, 350-word lots, you know, and then kind of edit it that way? They usually are. So, so this will be when I'm in the drafting stage, of course. Yep. So so I can't, I haven't figured out a way to apply it to editing, which is what I spend most of my time doing because yeah, the first drafts aren't great. Um but they're usually sequential. So I'll write 350 words. Sometimes it's more. Like sometimes I just, all I have to do is get to 350 words, but sometimes I go, oh, it's 500, awesome. Um, and because I generally, unless I'm really in a bad place, I won't stop in the middle of a sentence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it has happened. It has happened. Yeah. Uh, so then maybe I'll go get a cup of tea or I might just stay at my desk and go, right, I'm going to start the next one. I might go and have a nap. Like it really, anything could happen. It depends where I'm at. Um, you know, emotionally and, and time-wise and whatnot. But generally I'll write 350 words and then I'll sit back down and I'll just keep going the next 350 words. So it's still 
is a novel. They're not random bits of something that I have to sew together. It's um, it's it's in a timeline, but enormous editing, and that is no change from the process that came before it. I'm a big, I'm a quick first drafter, and I am a long editor. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Now, I also wanted to talk about your social media presence. So you have quite a few Instagram series that you add to weekly, um, <laughs> which includes one of my favourite, the One Star Review Fridays. <laughs> and Isn't that fun? I'm glad you like that one. That's my yeah, favourite too. Yeah, and I've seen so many people share it on Bookstagram last week when you put up the one about um, – was it the mother-in-law, I think, you done the reviews for? Um, it was, it, uh, you mean the jellyfish one? Yes, the jellyfish that, one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. that was uh, The Family Next Door. Oh, the Family I think Next that's Door. my new favourite review. For yeah. those listening, one of the reviews uh, for The Family Next Door, it was a fabulous one. Go and look it up. Um, you can search on Goodreads via the one stars. You'll probably never buy my books again, but it will be worth it for the humour that you will get. This one it gives a whole long kind of preamble about why they didn't like the book. And then the final line was, I just wish all of these women would be swept out into the ocean and stung by jellyfish. (laughs) And I just, it was just the best. Don't you think that person should be a writer? I mean, that's just a sensational slam of a book. Absolutely, Um, because I haven't read that book. So has that got anything to do with the plot in the book? No. (laughs) That's what makes it so great. It's so wonderfully specific and yet not. Uh, it's just, it's a sense. That review is better than the book. So read the review instead. Because <laughs> you have a few other ones too, which are um, Writerly Wednesday and Sally's Closet, Makeup Mondays, Fashion Fridays. Um, did all of this content come about through COVID? It did. It did. I, I I already had Instagram before and I would do various things on there. Uh, I guess the thing that happened in lockdown, which happened to, to lots of people, is that, and, and, and as we talked about earlier before we went on, Melbourne was in lockdown for a long time. Um, so depending on where you're listening uh, from, I'm in Melbourne. We had, you know, 18 weeks or something of, of being in lockdown. And it was a time where there wasn't a lot of creative connection and a time that was difficult for everyone. But I just found, A, I had a little bit more time than usual because I wasn't schlepping the kids off to school and things every day. I also had less time because they were breaking into my office every five minutes. But I I found a bit of connection in doing, you know, and, and as a viewer of Instagram I just loved watching people putting on their makeup and dressing up in clothes and talking about the minutiae of their life and so I quite enjoyed doing that with people and it doesn't take a lot of my time you know people say to me oh how do you get time to write when you're making all these videos the videos they're five or ten minutes I never do a second take like as you'll see if you watch them I'll drop something on the floor or my kids will come in or I'll answer the door because the packages arrive in the middle of the video I don't do two takes. I'm not an Instagrammer. Like my, my job is a writer. That's my first love. And this is just a bit of fun. Um, and, you know, I guess I post the kind of things that I enjoy seeing on other people's Instagram and I've made lots of beautiful connections with people. So um, now my husband Christian is 
getting in on the action and he's got his own Instagram too. <laughs> <laughs> give him a shout out. Give him a shout out. You can follow him on Mr. Sally Hepworth. And it's funny because, uh, well, that's at Mr. Sally Hepworth. He has just quit his job a couple of weeks ago to be my new uh, house servant, as someone <laughs> has described it. Uh, in fact, he's going to be, he calls it COO of the home, uh, Chief Operating Officer of the home. And he is also my personal assistant doing things for me, but he's he's doing some quite humorous uh, sort of accounts of him trying to make the school lunch boxes and getting doing the girls' hair and you know trying to keep it together. So uh, it's been a bit of trial and error so far, but he's he's doing a good job. I did love him when he was doing the lunch boxes. I thought um, if I had taken that to my son's preschool, I would have got a really cranky phone call that would have been like, come back here and pick this up now. <laughs> I know. And I just changed all the phone numbers over now. So he's the primary parent. And so if there's a phone call that's going to happen, it's going to go to him. So I have had to wash my hands mostly of my own judgment and fear of being judged and I've just let him go and do his thing and, you know, he'll he'll fail and fall just like we all have and then we'll see what happens. But <laughs> men, men are a bit different from women, aren't they? I feel like they're a bit more resilient to other people's judgment than perhaps we are. Absolutely. It's like that learning on the, <laughs> learning on the job. <laughs> yes, exactly. With the odd performance review that I have already given him. Now, I ran a little Instagram campaign to get you on the podcast and a lot of listeners joined in and helped me out and done all the sharing. So I wanted to open it up to them to ask you any questions they had. So I had a question from Emily at Pups and Paperbacks and she wanted to know, how do you think of the twists in your stories? And when you are writing the story, do you start from the end at the twist and then work your way backwards? Such a good question. Um, I think most of the twists, so I, I do plan things out to an extent before I start. I've talked about it and it's different for every book. Sometimes I'll just plan out the five main turning points. Sometimes I'll use a spreadsheet and plan out like a whole lot of scenes. Sometimes I will just have a bit of an idea of what I think is going to happen. I do have to send a synopsis to my publisher before I start for all of my books since The Secrets of Midwives because they have contacted them before and they probably want to have a look and see what it is I'm writing before I go and write it. That said, I have found that despite my planning, all of the twists, the one in The Good Sister, for example, uh, the one in The Mother-in-Law, The Mother-in-Law I had a plan for who I thought did it because it's a bit of a whodunit, and it, it did work out to be the person that I thought, but almost always it's someone else. And I wasn't sure that it was going to be that person until I got to the end. I really kept it open in my own mind because while you can have a plan, you don't really know if that's going to work until you get there. Uh, and for subsequent books, I often will throw in a twist when I'm writing the book and I have, as I say, planned it a little bit. And I get to a certain point and think I'm bored. I And I'm very easily bored. Um, and it's something that I don't tolerate. And so I think, well, what could happen? Oh, what about this? And I often find that they're the best twists because I have got a gut feel that this is something needs to happen here. This is a point where, 
you know, and, and then it's only when I'm at that point that I think this could work, you know, this could work. And those have been, and, and sometimes they're in the very final seat, in fact, uh, that one of those whiplash moments, which I quite like. So that's a really across the, you know, table way of saying I plan them to an extent, but then I also throw them in at the last minute and I just have to see what, what I think will work and take yeah. it from there. Yeah, I love that. And there was another question from Mel at The Reading Affair, which is probably going to be a bit of a tough question, but she wanted to know which one of your novels is your favourite? <laughs> I always say none. I, I, <laughs> I fall under the, the category of authors and there is two. There are the ones that love their novels and think they're all brilliant. And I, I, there was someone recently that I saw that posted that they were reading their novel and they just fell in love with the characters all over again. And I thought, wow, that has never happened to me. <laughs> I I find it difficult to open the book after it's been done because I think, oh, I can't change it. I need to put it away. And um, my it turns on my editor's brain and I wish I could go again at it. Um, so generally I don't feel that favourably about my books after they're published. That said, I have a real affection for the mother-in-law because I feel like I had something to sit, that I set out to do and that was to analyse the relationship between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law and and not fall for cheap stereotypes, you know, to none of these women are evil and the fact that it's such a fraught relationship it means it's much more likely that something else is going on, not that every mother-in-law in the world is evil. There's some thing in this dynamic and, and I wanted to explore that and, and make both women personable and, and I feel like I did that. So I, I feel a, a connection to that or a pride, I guess, in that book because of that. Uh, and The Good Sister, I feel a, um, is pride the right word? I feel a sense of achievement in that I had been wanting to write a book with the neurodiverse character for a long time. As I said, it's in our family. Um, it's something that we live with and, you know, love. We love the neurodiverse community. I love being a special needs mum. I uh, have wanted to write a, a character with additional needs, but I always wanted to make sure that I was able to do it respectfully be representative you have a responsibility when you do it and I've had just the most beautiful feedback from people who are on the spectrum themselves are a parent of someone on the spectrum who have sensory processing disorder and hasn't seen it in fiction before maybe someone that just that doesn't know anyone who is neuroatypical but it's just cracked open their heart a little bit more to consider what people who maybe seem like they're rude or abrupt uh, might actually what might actually be going on in their brain and that is a special kind of pride I feel not necessarily in the book but just in the fact that a bit like the mother-in-law I did what I set out to do I think and that always feels good yeah absolutely because like you said we we don't see many so sensory processing come up in uh, fiction and I work in disability I've worked in disability for eight years now so um I see a lot of that with our participants at work and um there is a lot of them that do enjoy reading as well so you know yeah. to have that relatability is really important as well 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, and and reading is a huge part of our family, and uh, I have found that definitely in the ASD community that um, that reading and and that library ASD. Uh, there's a lot of ASD librarians and librarians on the spectrum because there is that parallel between, uh, you know, neurodiversity and a love of reading. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, to wrap up, what can we expect next from Sally Hepworth? Oh, maybe the Swingers book will come out again. Yes. No. <laughs> Who knows? I uh, There will be another book from me. I think it'll probably be later this year, but we don't have a date yet, um, which I'm just putting the final touches on at the moment, and it's called The Younger Wife, and it's about a man who's probably about my dad's age who marries a woman who's about his adult daughter's age. So, And I've seen this happen a little bit lately. Um, he's got the younger wife, but again, something I love to do is twist these stereotypes on their head and see, you know, what's actually going on there. Is it just that he wants a young woman? You know, is there a real love there? What's going on? And of course it all takes place around a wedding at the beginning and also a murder because I have got a way of sneaking those murders in there. So (laughs) yes, I think hopefully it'll be more of you know more of what you enjoy about my books if you enjoy my books but a a different twist and a look at a different relationship yeah I'm super excited for that one I will be keeping my eyes and ears out (laughs) (laughs) Sally thank you so much for joining me today Sally's book The Good Sister is published by Pan Macmillan and is available now you can also follow Sally on Instagram at Sally Hepworth so thank you again my pleasure thank you for having me If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. You can subscribe and leave me a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or find me on Instagram at SoNovelPodcast. Thanks for listening and until next time, happy reading.